2: You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. This is a first because I have Beth here with me today. Hello. And she's actually here with me. She's actually sitting next to me. This is the first time this has happened on History Hack. First of being been able to do recordings together. Yeah, we're sharing germs and everything. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> uh, this is amazing. Yeah. So what is it, also amazing, Beth, is it's World War One today? It's completely which our is- wheelhouse where we exactly want to be all the time yeah we don't want to leave no tell us who's here with us
3: right so we've got Andrea Hetherington with us today so Andrea is an independent researcher and writer um, with a particular interest in social history surrounding the first world war she's written a couple of books one her first one on a book on widows of the first world war and this new one her brand new book is about deserters
2: during the first world war Andrea you pick some good subjects yeah I picked some hard subjects. They're really hard to research, actually. Oh, by good. I mean, it's good that you do all the work and I can just read them. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. They're not easy, <laughs> are they? These no, are they're like, really they're tricky. But, there, right. but you must have to really dig to make it into a of yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's but this is why I'm interested, because I think the best books come from not showing off what you know, but kind of displaying your journey almost so I think the best books come from you answering a question like I don't know anything about that that's interesting what's that all about then and, and discovering that nobody's written about it so you think all right well I'll have to answer that question myself then and before you know it you're you know 90,000 words in you've got a book
2: every <laughs> and they're going preach because they know that they went to look for a book it didn't exist and they went on yeah, myself yeah. <laughs> right okay uh, should we start yeah. Yeah, please. Give us a definition of desertion, because I don't think people aren't going to, they're going to learn a lot today, I think, about what it actually means and punishments and things. When does a man stop being absent without leave and just naughty, like overstaying leave and stuff, and officially become guilty of the crime of desertion?
4: Well, the answer, short answer is that he doesn't officially. I'll explain. Now, the definition of desertion comes from the Manual of Military Law, which is like the Bible for the British Army during the war. And it describes desertion as deserting or attempting to desert His Majesty's services, which is not the most helpful description I've ever seen, to be honest. But desertion is really to be understood by what it's not, which is absence without leave, which is quite tightly defined. So what they say about absence without leave is that that is such a short absence Unaccompanied by disguise, concealment, or other suspicious circumstances, as occurs when a soldier does not return to his corps or duty at the proper time, but on returning is able to show that he did not intend to quit the service or to evade the performance of some service so important as to render the offence desertion. So, in short, it's all about the intention of the soldier. Right. So things like how long you'd been gone, how far you'd gone, whether you were still in uniform, what had happened while you'd been gone, all went to a decision kind of after the fact as to whether you were guilty of desertion or absence. So the manual uses an example of a man found in plain clothes on a ship going to America as one where desertion would fairly clearly... <laughs> You've got out. no intention of coming back, have you? Exactly, yeah. But you could also not even leave camp but still be guilty of desertion if you were intending to avoid a particular duty. So, for example, and there's lots of examples of this, if your unit was off to France in the hour and you just went and hid in a cupboard somewhere until they'd all gone, then that was desertion, not absence, even though you might have only been gone an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So the distinction between the two was a really fine one and it wasn't applied consistently. And like I say, it was applied kind of after the fact. Um, I mean, you were officially declared a deserter after you'd been missing for 21 days. But as I say, that, that's not determinative because you could be gone an hour and still be guilty of desertion. So this this distinction is, is really loose because the benefit of the doubt was supposed to be given to the soldier, meaning that you were supposed to be charged with absence without leave, not desertion, if there was any room to do so. And room was very often found, so offences that on the face of it looked very much like desertion were downgraded to absence instead, partly so they could be dealt with more quickly Mm. um, without necessarily going through the whole court-martial procedure.
2: I think, yeah, when we did the Chelsea book, um, which is a Leeds fan, I know you'll be dying to talk about, uh, (laughs) we looked at... Because they did their initial training at White City, yeah. they let them go on the weekends. And yep. they're all buggers for coming back, overstaying leave and over, overstaying weekend oh, yeah. off. Because they're just like, they stroll back in a day late, drunk and go, oops. We had one guy and we still maintain it's the best disciplinary record I've ever seen because everything happened ac- over one night. And he had <laughs> uh, back in an officer, uh, leaving white city without permission, drunkenness, urinating on the wheel of a lorry, back chatting the <laughs> sergeant that caught him and then trying to punch him in the face. He obviously went on a bender and had the best night out ever and came back. <laughs> day good. Day. It's actually quite, it's fuzzy, isn't it? And I think a lot of the time, I mean, we'll we see the story, don't you, about the sleeping sentry and the officer just kicked him awake. I mean, that's a death sentence, but obviously yeah. in common sense land. Yeah. In theatre. It's a, yeah. it's a totally different concept, isn't it?
4: Yeah, no, oh, it is. Um, and as I say, you know, there are offences and you think, oh, that's, that's desertion, that. And then you, you, if you're lucky enough to be able to follow it through, you'd find that they actually just got 28 days confined to barracks or something and it was downgraded to, to being absent without leave. And on the face of, of things like, you know, how long they've been gone, et cetera, you think, well, I can't see any, any justification for that. But, of course, they, they, can't, they can't be heavy-handed with everybody because they need to get people packed into the ranks,
0: mm. you know,
4: both on the home front and abroad. You know, they can't have people languishing in, in jail for, for years, although people, some people did, um, because they need to recycle the manpower. So a lot of the punishments were, were really light.
3: Actually, how prevalent was it in the British Army during the First World War? Is it something that you find does happen a lot or is it actually quite rare?
4: No, it happens a lot. I think it's much more common than people have generally thought. I mean, the real figures will unfortunately never be known. So reasons I'll explain in a bit. But if we just look at the numbers for men that were actually court-martialed, so taken to a military court for the offences of desertion and absence without leave on the home front, which is is what I'm mostly concerned with. Mm. So um, court-martials on the home front for those offences, 82,423. Mm. Court-martials on all fronts for desertion and absence is nearly 127,000. Mm. And the number of men struck off the strength which is where they're missing for 21 days so they're declared deserters during the war it's 147,000 so and the net loss to the british army for desertion during the war so that's the number of deserters minus the number that returned from desertion during the war as a whole is 82,000 so had i mean had you lost 82,000 men in a particular battle it would take its place in in the ranks of of disasters like like the Somme and Passchendaele, wouldn't it? Um, so to lose that number of men who never came back um, is quite significant. But as I say, the numbers who actually engaged in desertion would be even bigger than that. The reasons being that those figures that I've just given you are just for court martials So those are just for men who were put before the court on their rearrest. So what those statistics don't reflect is that there were loads of soldiers who made off and were recaptured and were not court-martialed because it wasn't obligatory. Your commanding officer could punish you without reference to a court-martial, especially if he downgraded your offence to being absent without leave. So large numbers were merely punished by their commanding officer in a lesser fashion and are therefore not showing up in those figures. And also the numbers struck off the strength won't be as high as those who ran off for shorter periods. So if you have to be missing for 21 days to be struck off the strength, if you were gone, but you'd managed to come back before the 21 days up, you wouldn't be in those those figures um, either. So I think hundreds of thousands of men will have an entry on their record for absence or desertion. And I think it was an everyday part of military life and it was far more widespread than might be imagined at this juncture. And I think it's also was culturally accepted to a degree. Um, Taking some extra time off Certainly for a citizen soldier, it wasn't seen as as a heinous crime. And the proliferation of slang around this practice, I think, is illustrative of this. So you have heard of of French leave, doing a guy, swinging the lead. There's loads of other terms that soldiers had for not being where you're supposed to be at, at the right time. So, I think it really was part of the strategy for the citizen soldier for navigating their way through the war. So I think if you seek an answer to the question, what did your ancestor do in the Great War? The answer might surprise you.
2: Yeah, uh, this is so my, my thesis at the moment is uh, self-inflicted wounds and it's the same. Yeah. How many? You will never know. You will never okay. know because of the ones where people just let it go or people didn't get found out or it wasn't yeah. recorded, or they just went into a casualty clearing station and nobody wrote it down. And so it's one of those difficult things to try and recreate because it wasn't yeah, about at the time. I think the first connection people make with desertions in their heads is the sad cases. You desert, they shoot you.
4: Why is this a dangerous assumption to make? Well, the concentration on those shots at dawn deserters is it's massively disproportionate and it obscures the experience of the vast majority of men who committed the offence of desertion and did so either temporarily or permanently just because the army didn't suit them at the time. So there's only 266 soldiers shot for desertion itself. If you compare those to the figures I've just given you, just for those deserters that were court-martialed, you'll see there's a huge disparity there. I think it also leads people to believe that everyone who deserted was shot and that all those who deserted were later pardoned 100 years later because they were all suffering from shell shock, and none of this is necessarily true. So the shot at dawn cases are not representative of deserters in general, and they don't show the level of non-cooperation with, with the war effort that was present, which I think has been very much obscured, um, even over the centenary period. There's this belief that we're all in it together and everybody was doing their bit, apart from these poor deserters who were suffering from shell shock and were all shot. And it's not it's not really the true picture.
3: So what are the usual punishments for desertion, Andrea? What kind of, could you put it in the context of, of the circumstances, you know, for those deserters? Would they have, you know, pay docked or would there be more severe
4: punishments for them? Okay. Well, theoretically, whilst the country's at war, the death penalty exists for deserters, whether they've walked away from a trench in France or from a parade ground in Aldershot, because the designation of being on active service applies to both situations. But in practice, the death penalty is not imposed for desertions at home. But there are 14 cases of the shot at dawn deserters where the soldier was actually arrested in Britain but taken back to the front for his court martial and eventually executed. And those were men who'd overstayed their leave or um, two cases where they had hidden um, to avoid a draft that was going to the front. And one poor man who was arrested in France but was transported back to Britain so that he could be identified and then was taken back to France and shot. So it didn't apply the death penalty for desertion on the home front, but it did in certain circumstances. But generally, if you go before a court-martial as a soldier on the home front, it would be a district court-martial where their maximum punishment was two years imprisonment. Very aggravated offences, and all offences for officers would go before a general court-martial where the punishments were harsher and could include the death penalty, though, as I say, that never happened. But There were only a tiny, tiny proportion of general court-martials on the home front, around 3,000, where there were 130-odd thousand um, district court-martials, so a tiny proportion. So the vast majority of men who were sentenced by court-martial on the home front got sentences of military detention, and there were just over 100,000 such sentences handed down. But those sentences were then reviewed by senior officers and were often reduced or remitted to return men to service more quickly. Short sentences of detention, so less than seven days, we be served in cells at the barracks, while soldiers serving longer periods were shipped out to military detention facilities around the country. But you're right about the docking of pay. Both deserters and absentees had their pay docked for every day they were missing and every day they were serving any kind of punishment. They're also liable to pay for every piece of their issued kit that was missing when they came back and for the cost of an escort to go and collect them. Now, Absentees, as, as I've said earlier, were much less likely to have to face court-martial proceedings in the first place as the summary powers of punishment available to the com- company commander and their commanding officer allowed for a range of punishments to be imposed that stopped short of imprisonment. So an absentee could get up to 28 days detention under these summary powers without going anywhere near a court-martial. Other punishments available being field punishment. Appeal punishment number one, being yeah. tied to an object either outside for a few hours, though there's a debate as to whether that ever happened on the home front. Or number two, which was basically just being kept within, um, within the barracks, in the room at the barracks. Or just confinement to barracks, which is known as the CB or jankers, sometimes extra duties, and of course the, the forfeiture of pay. So the range of punishments was, was really quite wide. And again, this distinction of her absence without leave or desertion would play into that as well. But there was also just a really kind of arbitrary element to military justice, um, which I think was part of its power, really. You never really knew what was what was going to happen to you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It just depends who you get on what given day, doesn't it? How many, yeah. I'm interested to know how many cereal deserters you find. So if a man does it once, how likely is he to do it again? Because I've seen a couple of service files. Um, I was looking at one this morning, actually. The guy's a nightmare. You let him yeah. out of sight for long <laughs> enough, he's off.
4: Yeah, well, there's lots of men like that. Um, but there's no hard and fast rule. For some men, one brush with the authorities was enough and their record after is exemplary. Um, you know, I've found a few examples, you know, a lot of examples of men who will just get themselves into trouble once. Um, some of them go on to win medals. One of the, them that, that I found and researched, um, he was in big trouble at the start of his, his military career. But he went on to uh, win, win a medal and lose a leg in, in an action Um, So some men, it's just a blip. It's either a misunderstanding of of the rules or or it's because they've had something they've had to deal with briefly, gone and dealt with it and come back. Um, But some of them would desert time after time, as as you say. Um, Interestingly, 91 of the shot at dawn cases were already under suspended sentences for desertion at the time that they committed their last offence. So some men deserted time after time because they were just not used to military life, didn't like it. Um, but some deserted because they were making a living from selling their army kit so there's a number of examples of this serial desertion and people often worked in gangs enlisting and deserting en masse so I found an example in Belfast in February 1915, where four deserters with 10 different aliases between them appeared in court for this, this particular offence. So they'd joined quite a few regiments since war was declared, and they were finally arrested because they'd enlisted in the Royal Irish Rifles the day after enlisting and deserting from the Leinster's. Um, and suspicion was aroused by the fact that as soon as they got their Royal Irish Rifles uniforms, they were selling the kit they'd already been given from the other regiment. Mm. Um, some joined regiments found it didn't suit them and left, but then joined another regiment immediately, hoping for a better experience. And this was a yeah. phenomenon called fraudulent enlistment, which needs to be put alongside desertion and absence without leave, because it was also rife in the First World War. And yeah, I, think I got daily... one of those.
2: The Chelsea yeah. actually joined, joined an infantry unit was like, no, I don't fancy this, and just went and served in the artillery instead.
4: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've got an example of a guy who joined an ordinary regiment and in his billets with this regiment he saw a photograph of the woman's husband in a grenadier guards uniform and thought oh hang on i like that uniform so deserted and <laughs> went off and joined them instead um so it, it was something that that was quite rife and as i say it's only something that's recently being uncovered I and mean, you'll not infrequently find soldiers' records the various kinds with also known as stamped on them or yes. served as, wherever you look, whether that's on their medal cards, on their service records, the Commonwealth war graves, records of, uh, of burials, you'll find quite a range of those. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that, that's only recently kind of coming to light, really. And I have found examples of men deserting a range of regiments. Um, one guy called Henry Tuft managed to join and desert three different regiments between August and October 1914 another guy appeared in court as a deserter and was telling the magistrates that you know he'd served about four or five different regiments that he'd served in and then the prosecutor kind of burst his bubble by telling the court that yes he had served in those regiments but unfortunately he deserted from all of them so there were a lot of these guys um some of them will not have been detected because they've they've joined up in another name in another regiment uh, and they've they've just cracked on with it but and some were um but yeah there's there's a lot of people that that just kind of moved around um it might be
2: pre-digital age pre-photo
4: id yes exactly that's the next point if somebody says that they are someone how are you going to disprove that you know there's no joined up thinking between um not even between regiments never mind between branches of the service you'd have people deserting the army to join the navy and vice versa um yeah, how are you going to prove that this isn't the person? No one was expected to have their birth certificate with them. This is the reason why so many underage soldiers joined up and were able to join up, isn't it? Because you could, if somebody obviously there's a lot of collusion from the recruiting sergeants, but generally, if somebody turned up and said, I'm 19, I want to join the army. They wouldn't have any proof of that, but equally, you wouldn't have any proof that they were not. So, yeah, I think um, as
2: well. There, like you say, there's a motivation for them to get as many enlisted as possible. Mm. So, you're oh not yeah, In impressed with drilling to the bottom of who someone says yeah. they are, are you? If they give you, we a haven't,
4: we haven't got time. You know, you just need to get these people in, uh, and you you just haven't got haven't got time to to do it. So, you know, there were some some telltale signs sometimes when you would you were trying to enlist another regiment. Um, I found an example of a couple of guys who did it, and whilst they were having their medical, they took their jackets off, and the recruiters immediately saw that they were already wearing Kitchener-issue shirts, so they were (laughs) obviously soldiers from somewhere else. Uh, Vaccination marks would be another telltale sign often, as people were often not vaccinated until they joined the army, Um, so that was another sign. Um, when when people were trying to see if, if somebody might be a deserter or wanted elsewhere. If they were vaccinated, there was a good chance they'd been in the army at some stage.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I think let's talk about some specific cases. Uh this one isn't on the list, but I didn't know this till just now. Uh, today's the anniversary of someone in Beth's family. Yeah, he's he's in my family by by oh,
3: marriage. So. Yeah. Um his mom okay. married into my family generations back and he Enlisted. He was in the first sixth battalion of the King's Liverpool Regiment, um, was at Third Eap um and killed on the 31st of July 1917. Um oh, he 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 went AWOL at the beginning of July and was missing for about 10 days. Mm. Um, but I think because he was an absentee, like you said, Andrea, it didn't go to a court martial. But I have found documentation where he was actually docked his pay when he was then presented to his uh, as you say something like his company commander and then he was his his punishment was two weeks of docked pay and he was actually on docked docked pay when he was killed um and men yeah
4: yeah so as i say yeah he's the kind of the kind of man you're not going to see in the statistics for desertion or or absence without leave because he never never had to go to a court martial. so now there must be hundreds of thousands of guys that have done something like like that Yeah. Um, yeah they've got that on their service record but as you know, not all the service records survive, and it and it would just be a case of of you know doing some mad trawl through them. You'd have to Yeah, it's it's just beyond, to be honest, to be able to to sit down and and do that. Though um, so, you know, when you do have a, a random look, sometimes you look at something for other reasons, and, and you will find that on the the record, and and then you know I try and see if it's it's a story worth worth using. Um, But but yeah, that that's it's not not an untypical story.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
2: I mean, we did, so when we researched the Chelsea book, we did uh, a cross-section, and brilliantly, we found something like 85 to 90% of the 17th Middlesex service files from the first 1,500 guys, so the guys that enlisted on the base wow. to join and play we could they survived. And actually, we went through every single one of them, because we were trying to pinpoint who the Chelsea fans were, and more... But they're not all shot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> more men had disciplinary infractions than didn't. I mean, the, yeah, the idea absolutely. that anyone went through their military service without once getting into trouble, especially this lot based at White City with London on their doorstep, on their yeah, doorstep, it's a big draw. One, um, yeah, one case was Bob Whiting, and this is quite a famous one. Yeah. So he Played for Chelsea, but he was Brighton's keeper at the time, and he joins the footballers' battalion, and he. Yeah. He goes missing for quite some time during the Battle of the Somme. Basically, his wife is pregnant with their third child and he just doesn't go back after leave. And he's run down. He's arrested. Uh, they put him through disciplinary and everything. And yet they, they put him straight back into his battalion and he's killed at Arras. Yeah. Uh, how typical is his case?
4: Yeah, well, uh, uh, Bob Whiting, he, he didn't return from leave, did He, he was sent home suffering from scabies I think wasn't he and um he was he wasn't missing that long he was missing for from June till October 1916 arrested at home sent back across the channel as you say he got his initial sentence was he got nine months hard labor but he he was pretty immediately recycled back into the ranks because that sentence all the sentences went up the chain for what we call promulgation which is like checking um and his sentence was then suspended So his case was quite typical in in a number of, of ways. So the suspension of the sentence was entirely typical. This was introduced in May 1915 because, as I indicated earlier, there were too many men languishing in detention when manpower was essential. So sentences after May 1915 were routinely suspended to allow a man to to prove himself again so be hanging over them would be reviewed in a certain number of months and could either then be imposed if they hadn't behaved themselves or resuspended or remitted so that suspension of sentence for him was it was entirely typical so some took the hint like Bob and didn't get into any further trouble and some didn't so A significant proportion, as I say, of those shot at dawn were actually under suspended sentences. Some of them suspended death sentences. Um, He was also typical in that failing to return from leave was a problem. Um, He was lucky he wasn't shot, actually, as some men in his position were. For example, um, Peter Sands, an Irish soldier, he was shot for overstaying his leave. He went home on leave to Belfast. He didn't go back at the time he was supposed to. Stayed an extra couple of months, was arrested in Belfast, taken back across to France, court-martialed, death sentence imposed, and carried out. Um, But as as I said earlier, the one thing
2: about Whiting, can I ask, do you think his celebrity played into his commuted sentence, or is it like you're saying? No, no,
4: I I really don't. It was so. It was the instructions were given after. 1915 that you were not to impose immediate imprisonment unless unless it was absolutely necessary. So the the default position was always going to be that you suspended that sentence. So no, I, I very much doubt that his, his celebrity will have, have played into that at all, actually. But failing to return to leave, like I said, was a problem. Um, but it sounds to him like obviously his, his wife was pregnant, about to give birth to, to a third child, So here's an example of family problems causing people to develop family issues. And that was very frequent as well. Illnesses of family members, children especially. That was a frequent reason for men to to decide that they needed to go home for a bit. Um, Wives potentially not behaving themselves. That was another reason. A number of men cited the fact that they'd heard their wives were having affairs for reasons why they'd they'd not come back on time or, or they'd gone home. So yeah, his his family situation—that's an entirely typical reason for, for him to desert. And another typical aspect of his case is when you actually look at his service record, the offence of desertion was downgraded to being absent without leave.
2: Yeah, he's back in time for November on the Somme, isn't he? And yeah. He's as I said at Arras. In yeah. April. So actually, it it's just it's like a three month spell away from an otherwise standard. Participation in all the offensives that are going on.
4: Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah.
3: Some of the men that you've researched, Andrea, take the offence of desertion and really, they don't just desert, do they? They embellish and they go and do things like impersonate potentially other other troops that have been killed. So, could you tell us something a bit about about those and why they do what they do and how they do it?
4: Okay. Well, it it all comes down to survival, really, on on the home front and the strategies deserters use to support themselves. Because, of course, they're not getting their army pay now, are they? Because they're they're gone. So their their pay is stopped immediately. um, So they need to find other ways of of making a living, etc. So lots of men would just go home and lie low, get rid of their uniforms, have nothing to connect them to the army, spend their days in the attic or the coal cellar. Whilst others actually hid in plain sight, cavorting around and presenting themselves as war heroes when they were actually on the run. So impersonations got a number of different levels. And some of the most audacious frauds are committed by deserters who pretend to be officers, taking advantage of that class bias that meant that an officer's word was worth more than that of the average Tommy Uh, For example, Laurie Bell, a.k.a. Lorenzo Reginald Bell, he pretended to be an officer and he committed frauds in various locations, the cheekiest being that he forged an order from the War Office to allow him to go to the Tower of London and select himself a revolver, no less that no doubt (laughs) he was sold. At one stage, he was even working as a recruiting sergeant in Bradford whilst he was actually a deserter. It's quite astonishing. But So there's a lot of impersonation of officers going on um, because... People would accept cheques from officers by the time that's bounced because it's not your your account. Um, you're on the way to somewhere else. You're staying in some other hotel somewhere else in the country, living it up and writing more bad cheques. So that was really prevalent. But some impersonations, as you've indicated, were, were more small-scale and more heartbreaking as deserters presented themselves to families as their missing relatives. There was a number of levels of this that fell short of that. For example, a lot of people would just scan the local papers for who was missing um, or who'd been killed and go to those families and pretend to have served with the man and pretend to be there with a message from him or something like that just to get some money, maybe some free accommodation for a couple of days, even just a meal, something like that. A lot of that went on. Um, But I have found two cases of these Martin Guerre scenarios, if I put it that way, that are quite astonishing In one case, a man called George Hall walked into a shop run by a Mrs. Tandy and declared himself to be her missing husband. Now, he did bear a resemblance to her husband, who had actually been killed at Gallipoli, although she was unaware of that fact at the time. And George Hall ended up being convicted of rape once his identity was uncovered. Because had his true identity been known, no such intimacy would have, have taken place. But she, for a period of time, had convinced herself that he was her husband. In another a man called Thomas, ba- Thomas Baker convinced a whole family, including his fiance, that he was the missing man. And they held to that belief even after the police got involved. The family was split on two sides as to who thought he was the real person and, and who thought he wasn't. And it was only when his real mother was brought to court, when he was arrested and charged, that he finally accepted that, that he wasn't. This man. Now, interestingly, I have seen photographs of this guy and the man he was impersonating and he looked nothing like the missing man. who was actually incarcerated in a POW camp at the time, but in a a far less tragic outcome, did eventually come home and marry his fiance. Now, whether the real man ever learned the story of the fake man, I really don't know. I did actually make contact on this one with with a family member who knew about um, her relative's war service but was completely shocked when I shared this, this impersonation story with him because nobody in the family had ever mentioned it. I suspect his fiance later his wife, was probably very embarrassed about the whole thing and, and just wanted to completely sweep it under the carpet. So, as I say, the existing members of the family certainly didn't know about it and, until I, I told them.
2: I love that he finally, like, they wheeled his mum out in court and he went, on.
4: Oh. Yeah. I admit we did that a few times, mum staring you down and going all right. yeah I'm- well in, in the other case, they wheeled his wife in, who um, I think was more interested in having a go at this other woman saying, if my husband walked in, I would surely know who he was or who he wasn't um but yeah, wheeled, wheeling family members in that that was not infrequent where people were were insistent that they they were this person, they weren't a deserter they were they were this person. Um, It it was not infrequent, actually. Uh, One of the I'll call the home runner shot at Dawn case is the guy that was arrested in France, but brought back to England to be identified. He was identified in court by his own sister who said, oh, no, that's my brother. I think if she'd realised that they were then going to shoot him, she might have kept her mouth shut.
2: How hard did the authorities look for these men? I'm particularly interested in how much capability they've got to because there's a war on and surely this is just a pain in the arse so does it vary um i'm guessing that some guys get run down really hard and others i mean you've got a case
4: of two brothers that's really surprising haven't you Mm. well i think throughout the war there's an issue with capacity but i think certainly at the start of the war the army haven't got the capacity to conduct thorough searches for these men The military police, are very, very small in number at the start of the war, 401 military policemen in the whole of Great Britain, which is a tiny, tiny number. So they didn't have the ability really to do it. So the job was left mostly to the civilian police, certainly in the early stages of the war. By the end of the war, the number of military police on the home front increases tenfold. Um, But still, it's mostly the job of the civilian police. So when a man's declared a deserter, his details are passed to the Police Gazette for publication, and they would print his name, his regimental number, his corps, details of his appearance, like his height, any distinguishing marks, his pre-army trade, the location where he enlisted, and his place of birth. So that was distributed, obviously, throughout the country to the police, and, and police constables were meant to be on the alert for them, especially in the area where they might have previously lived. So it's like the police national computer of its day. Yeah. Now, from the start of the war, they're carrying an average of a 1,000 names a week for men who are wanted for absence and desertion. Again, that's a significant number if you look at the difference between that and the men who were court-martialed. Significantly more of them are being put in the police gazette than ever eventually faced a court martial. Now, the police top brass were getting pretty fed up with this because they were getting so many inquiries from the army about missing men. And the Met complained about it. Manchester police complained about it. But the copper on the street loved nicking deserters because when you took them to court, you got a reward. So uh-huh. the, court, the court would give you a reward of between five and 20 shillings, which would boost your income considerably. Usual reward was about 10 shillings. It was supposed to vary on the amount of of initiative and and trouble taken by the officer to arrest this person, but they would get a reward. So I think the police on the street were probably quite keen on nicking deserters. Um, But as I say, the top brass were not because obviously they had so many other things to do during the war that this was just one extra thing that that was just really a pain for them. Um, But yeah, the, the ship brothers case, that is a really interesting story. So, on Boxing Day 1914, so this is the day after the Christmas truce, they weren't involved in it, but their unit were, and they were supposed to be relieving their unit that, that night in the trenches. But they were in billets in a, a French village. So they're with the 13th London Battalion, also known as the Kensingtons. Yeah. So they get up in the morning in this French village and they go off to buy bread, so everybody thinks, and they never come back. Now, some of their colleagues thought they might have drowned, because the path they took went alongside this fast-flowing river, but nobody's ever appeared. So nobody really seems very interested in the case until October 1916, so you know, nearly two years later when suddenly the War Office start asking what's happened to these two. Again, nothing happens. The trail's cold until February 1917, when a man's arrested for desertion in a hostel off the Edgware Road in London. He insists his name is Jack Smith, and he's a deserter from the Royal Fusiliers. Further investigation follows. This is another case where family members are brought in to identify him. And in this case, it was his parents. And they discover this is actually Charles Shipp, one of these men that's been missing since Boxing Day 1914. Wow. wow. So he's court-martialed. He's taken back across the channel. He's court-martialed, unsurprisingly, convicted of desertion. And he's actually sentenced to death. But on review... That becomes five years imprisonment and then that's suspended. He won't tell them how he manages to get across the Channel or what he's been doing for two years, but he does tell them that his brother was killed shortly after they ran off. But this isn't true because one Harry's ship came home and enlisted in the Essex Regiment where he spent the rest of the war on the home front. Now, interestingly... So I said nobody was interested in this case until October 1916. Well, that coincides with one Harry ship being court-martialed for a different offence, for chatting back to an officer, basically, not for desertion. But it's an interesting connection there in the dates, because it's that, then after that, I suspect it's his court-martial that triggers that further investigation into what happened. So did Harry do a deal and grass his brother up? I think we'll never know at this stage, but it's it's a really interesting one. Now, also interestingly, both of them are very keen to boast about their military service after the war. Charles applies for the requisite extra bit on his medal because he was under fire in 1914. So he needs a a clasp. Whereas Harry posts an entirely fanciful entry in the national role of the Great War, which lies about all of his activities, um, obviously doesn't mention his desertion but lists all these battles he was involved in, which he clearly was not because he was back home by then. Uh, Now, interesting, my my friend Tom Thorpe's done a lot of work on the Kensington's Battalion. Um, And when he got my book and and he saw the story, he was astonished because he'd heard the very start of this story from one of the, there's an account from one of the guys that served with them of of the day they went missing, but he he dismissed it as being too far-fetched to be true. But it actually is true. Um, So that's really interesting.
3: I love that. I think Man. that's a really
2: insane story, the pair of them as well. It and is a bit sus, isn't it? Like, twitches every time she hears the Kensington's because of Goncourt in 1960. No. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know what? Actually, I do, I'm i doing my data set for the self-inflicted wounds as well and the amount of them, the poor London Division, 56 Division at Ginshi. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Just even worse. The desperation with some of the descriptions of what they're doing to get oh, out of the
4: um, wow. I've not done much on self-inflicted but I mean, I know they were, if they were deemed to have self-inflicted, they would send They couldn't even go to a normal hospital, could they? They went to a special hospital. So
2: they didn't for naughty people. Everybody else, yeah, yeah. Um, we're complete nerds, Beth yeah. and I, aren't we? We absolutely are. Yeah, and,
3: and being nerds, that means we love a good source, whether it be primary or secondary. Um, so, what kind of sources do you, did you use to find out all of this? interesting information, and how did you actually get onto this subject itself?
4: Well, I think that the how is, is probably the first thing to start with. So in the introduction, you mentioned my last book was on Britain's First World War, Widows, still available from all the usual stockists. I'll
2: well, we'll put it on the History Hat bookshop as well, just so people can get it even <laughs> It's great. Give it's it's it me
4: those p- penny royalties. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, um, the Forgotten Legion, you called it, didn't I you? I did, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I called it that because... Um, I do firstly I generally I do think it's a forgotten story but um, the British War Widows Association wasn't founded until 1971 and at the cenotaph ceremony each year for a lot of years they were refused the ability to participate and what they would do would be they would have their own little ceremony the night before and they would lay a wreath or a cross of white chrysanthemums which was their emblem. And the the card that they left with that would say, you know, from Britain's war widows, the Forgotten Legion. So that's where I got the, the title for the, for the book from. But anyway, so during the research for that book, I came across some poor widows who were duped into marrying men who only wanted them for their pensions. Um, once you remarried as a war widow, your pension stopped, but you got a big lump sum of either a year or two years pension, depending on the stage of the war we're talking about. So that that's quite a significant lump of money. So they'd get married they would and they would get that quite quickly actually. They would then get this big lump sum. These guys would work their way through it and then they'd disappear. Awesome. So when I looked into those to my surprise a lot of those men turned out to be deserters. So obviously as I said earlier their army pay was cut off as soon as they deserted and they obviously saw these women as an easy mark basically. So that kind of piqued my interest and I thought okay, so hang on, how many of these home front deserters were there and, and how did they manage to survive in what was virtually a military state when they were on the run from the military? I then discovered that there was no answer to that because nobody had ever researched or written about it. So I thought, okay, well, I better do it myself then. Yeah. So I started to look into it and I was really astonished by, by, you know, what I found both in terms of the numbers as we've discovered, also the the individual stories, which, you know, are quite amazing really. Um, So in terms of sources, well, I I don't make life easy for myself. The reason people don't write about these topics, widows, deserters, is because they're hard to research. (laughs) Um, I think you really need some tenacity and the ability to do quite a lot of lateral thinking about sources and where you might get stuff from. So my sources are a mixture of the official records and more informal sources like memoirs and newspapers. So for government records, of course, you go to the National Archives where you'll find some records, For example, the shot at Dawn Files, as you'll be aware, have been saved in their entirety. Unfortunately, nobody else's stuff has, but the shot at Dawn Files have. Um, Cabinet discussions, War Office reports where you you find the the true picture of um, people that are are not turning up under conscription, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I looked at a lot of publications of the war years. I went sat in the British Library reading every single issue of Justice of the Peace magazine, for example, (laughs) which is not riveting, let me tell you. Um, Every issue of John Bull, which was more interesting. Um, And then, of course, there's the British Newspaper Archive, which is a really rich resource for social historians. Um, But you've got to be prepared to do the digging when you find something there and not just take it at at face value and and try and cross-reference sources. So uh, you make sure that you, you really do dig into a story and get the most out of it. And sometimes just a random trawl of men's service records does throw up stories that you might never have found elsewhere. And I have found some stuff when I've been researching something entirely different. Um, I was researching for a television company uh, who made the, um, I think it was called hundred days to victory program that was on the BBC um, what 18 months ago now, two years ago. And um I wasn't researching deserters at all. They, they sent me to look at some files that they hoped would be of men that were involved in, in those battles, and most of them weren't. Um, but one of them I found was, was a, actually a deserter, and he had left some tantalising glimpses of, of this within the, the file that, that was in the archives, in that he was trying to... He deserted it's very, towards the end of, of the war. He was a regular soldier, and he deserted. He, I don't think he felt he was capable of going back. And he wanted to sort it all out after the war, surrender himself. So there were some letters that he'd written and replies that he, well, the replies that he'd got back from various people, MPs, etc. that he would tried to, to get some advice from. So as you'll know from when you're doing research, sometimes you're researching something completely different, but you'll find this this little gem that leads you on a, on a different track, a completely different rabbit hole.
2: Yeah. Rabbit-holing is probably the most fun thing about being... It is,
4: yeah. But you waste days, don't you? You'll think, I wonder if... I'll just have a look at that. And before you know it, you've spent the whole day doing it. And you might not have got anything. Create right uh, a
2: brand new spreadsheet for something else. Yeah, my rabbit <laughs> hole in I have a spreadsheet of 22,000 Frenchmen who died in on one day in 1914. And this week's rabbit-hole was social Darwinism boom Ooh. in Germany Ooh. in the years... Ooh first world war Ooh, yeah wow they're all losers um, yeah, but we love basically. it we can't get enough of it andrea thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your new book no. and everybody else what's it called again
4: it's called deserters of the first world war the home front and it's available from all good stockists
2: uh namely the history hack bookshop as well which means not only does andrea get money we get money as well
4: and oh well that's a win-win then yeah
2: probably the publisher as well but we don't care so much about that
1: when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest and greatest books you can support them and you can support history hack too 10 of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.